Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. On the 23rd of November 1963 at Kunsan Air Base, South Korea, a detachment of US Air Force B-57 Canberra bombers were parked on an alert pad each with a live nuclear weapon in their bomb bay and ready to fly at a moment's notice. At 0400, klaxon horns aroused the aircrew from their slumber and they rushed to their waiting aircraft for what they likely thought was just one more drill. But this morning was different. As the crew strapped themselves into their cockpits, they were told to await a signal to fly their war mission. With targets in North Korea, China and the Soviet Far East, the aircrews instinctively knew that they would be flying one-way missions, but they had no idea as to why they were facing potential oblivion. I talked with US Marine veteran John F. Davies, who has researched the little-known story of the military response to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Today is the 60th anniversary of the assassination, and I'm delighted to welcome John F. Davies to our Cold War conversation. We have just received word that shots have been fired at the Kennedy motorcade. The president is clearly, gravely, critically, and perhaps fatally wounded. There are strong indications that he may already have expired, although that is not official. We repeat, not official. President Kennedy is dead, Gordon. Ladies and this gentlemen, is official the word. The president is dead. The president, ladies and gentlemen, is dead. Well, on November 22nd, 1963, I was eight years old, but unlike most other people my age at the time, I was excused from school. I had a mild head cold and was watching the television with my grandmother when the bulletin hit the airwaves. Needless to say, it was probably one of the most shocking and profound experiences of my life. It seemed so surreal at the time, and I remember the tension that I felt at the time, the tension everyone felt. Nobody really knew what was happening. There was so much uncertainty and fear. And in fact, I can remember at the time, I was pretty frightened. Then following that, 18 years later, during my time in the military, I served eight years in the United States Marine Corps as an officer. 
I was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, doing an inventory with another officer when we received word that President Ronald Reagan had been shot. Me and the other officer were then ordered to report to a conference room on base mainside, and when we got there, we found a lot of officers milling about asking questions as to what was going on, and it was a great state of confusion. Then shortly afterward, the chief of staff entered and told us that the president was out of danger and for us to return to our units and wait for further instructions. And for a brief period, Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune was on lockdown. So my own personal experiences got me aware of the kind of situation that happened when President Kennedy was killed and how the military responded. And finally, I left my military career afterward and eventually got into the healthcare field and worked at the Veterans Hospital in San Francisco. And during my time there, I heard from many veterans about what happened, and they were telling me stories that they were mounting up and getting ready to go to war, and I'm going, wow, I never heard about this. Uh, one more thing that's important here is during my time in the military, I did a lot of intelligence-related work, documents control, work with uh, special weapons. And so I got to see how documents were classified, how they were declassified, how they were routed. So it gave me a very good insight into just how and where to find these things. So after I retired, I took it upon myself to just get to the bottom of how the military responded on that day, which I would call the saddest day in American history. And to my surprise, I found that there was hardly anything there. Now, this was rather puzzling to me because this has nothing to do with what happened in Dealey Plaza. It's what occurred afterward. And it really took a slog. What was most amazing to me was that none of the historical offices of all our military branches had anything about it. So I had to really do this on my own. And after a lot of effort, I finally come out with what I believe is the definitive story. It's a, a fascinating uh, story you've, you've put together and some real moments of tension that we'll be talking about in, in a moment. Um, so President Kennedy is in Dallas on the 22nd of November. Where are the national security leadership when, when the news broke that something had happened in Dallas? Well, at the time, the national security leadership was scattered all about. Um, the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, was at the time in his office with the national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, going over a draft for the following year's defense budget. At the same time, the Joint Chiefs were in the Gold Room, that's a large conference room in the Pentagon, with their uh, counterparts in the West German Bundeswehr. Um, the uh, Chiefs of Staff were there, with the exception of General Curtis LeMay, the Air Force Chief of Staff. He was on leave at the time in northern Michigan on a hunting trip. Um, the Secretary of State and the rest of the Cabinet were also absent. They were at the time over the Pacific. They'd just taken off from Hawaii and on their way to a conference in Japan for uh, on economic matters. The presidential military aides, uh, Army Brigadier General Chester Clifton and Air Force Brigadier General Godfrey McHugh, were with the presidential party in Dallas. And at the uh, National Military Command Center in Washington, 
which I will add was under command of Brigadier General Paul Tibbetts, the former commander of the Enola Gay, the Hiroshima mission, and the uh, White House Situation Room were doing their normal duties. It seemed just like a regular day. What was the immediate reaction to the news as to uh, what had happened in Dallas? Well, just like everybody else, there was absolute shock. Both McNamara and Bundy ended their meeting immediately, with Bundy heading back to the White House. The Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense concurred, and they sent out a flash message advising all military commands of the said that the president had been shot and to wait for further instructions. The um, general tone there was, of course, confusion. The um, other things was that the uh, chiefs then returned to their meeting with the Germans. There was a uh, consensus among the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense that we had to keep things very calm and very controlled because they didn't want things to go out of hand. Uh, Now, at the time of the shooting, the um, presidential party, of course, was at Parkland Hospital. And the one thing that I found in my research that really stood out was that none of the official communications channels were used to gain contact with Washington. It was all done through civilian lines. For instance, uh, at Parkland Hospital, the uh, General McHugh, the uh, Air Force aide, was the main link between the National Military Command Center of the Pentagon. He was keeping them updated. Wow. And it's it's interesting because you sent me through details of the flash message that they sent out to the U.S. military commands, and they actually say, press reports say that Kennedy's been shot, Connolly as well, the governor of Texas. They're both critically Mm -hmm. injured, both in hospital in Dallas. No information yet. We'll keep you informed. So they're actually admitting there that they're getting information from press reports. That's correct. The first press report, the first response came to the White House Situation Room from none other than United Press International. Everybody else followed after the fact. Wow. Wow. Incredible. And obviously, you know, they're just using a regular phone line, so that's not encrypted in any way either. No, unsecured line. Whenever I was doing my classified work, I always had to say that we're on an unsecured line. So really, a lot of procedures were just thrown away, probably because of uh, of the confusion and near panic in some cases that was happening. Yeah. So at 2 p.m. on the 22nd, President Kennedy's confirmed as as dead. What yes. what then happens? Well, upon receiving confirmation of the president's death, uh, McNamara and the Joint Chiefs once again conferred, and at about a half hour later, they raised the alert level of all U.S. military commands one step to DEFCON four. Now, for those who don't know about the DEFCON conditions, there are five. DEFCON five is your standard uh, standard routine. DEFCON 4 is you're on standby, and what happens under that is um, security is increased, often lockdowns, and intelligence activity uh, monitoring is increased to its highest level. And then, of course, DEFCON 3 is the third level. It's the one where you're basically preparing to go to war. You're basically loading your weapons, but standing, still standing by. DEFCON 2 is where you're actually cocked and ready to go. And of course, DEFCON 1 is general war. So they decided to 
put it from my reasoning just as a standby in case anything else happened. You were ready, but not actually prepared to go to war. Would the Soviets have noticed that change in DEFCON level? Yes, they probably would have. Not not to go to digress too far here, but they were just as scared as we were. Now, there have been unconfirmed reports that the Soviets uh, put some of their nuclear strike forces in readiness. I haven't anything to confirm this. From what I see, they did not. But again, I think what we have here is everybody just on standby, waiting to go and awaiting any events from both sides. So there, while there was tension, both sides were very concerned about things getting out of control. And what's happening in Washington at this point? Well, what happened was in Washington, the uh, and this is the thing that I think pretty much covers the whole atmosphere and the whole approach at the time, is that General Taylor uh, conferred again with the Joint Chiefs, and instead of uh, adjourning their meeting with the Germans, they decided to continue with the uh, with the meeting, and they decided to just for the sake of continuity and stability. And when the conference concluded at uh, sixteen uh, four thirty that afternoon, Taylor then informed his guests of the sad news, and according to his house, the horrified Germans literally collapsed into their seats. Uh, at the same time, a, a C-140 Jetstar transport, that's a, like a business jet, was dispatched from Andrews Air Force Base to immediately pick up General LeMay in Michigan. What is the Joint Chiefs' contact with the vice president, or now president, at, at this time? What, what's going on in terms of that transition of command authority? Well, once again, confusion was reigning because... All the time at uh, Parkland Hospital, Lyndon Johnson made no effort to contact the Pentagon. In fact, uh, according to accounts at the time, he was actually quite dazed and really was more concerned with leaving Parkland and boarding the uh, boarding Air Force One. But no effort was made to contact Air Force One or more from Air Force One to contact uh, the Pentagon. And I'd like to go a bit into something else that was really um, rather unusual about this, is that at the time, the whole command and control structure appeared to just slow down. The response appeared disjointed and uneven, and procedures like communication checks weren't followed. No effort was made to alert overseas commands outside of the raising of the DEFCON level. So um, you had to board Air Force One almost a state of suspended animation. Um, after President Johnson was sworn in on his orders, the aircraft left Love Field and went on the way to Washington. Now, I will also say that within the Pentagon itself, an air of tension was reigning, and there were contingency plans at the time that considered a presidential assassination to be the beginning of a decapitation strike. Some of it even thought, went so far to think it was a possible coup, but following General Taylor's example, the whole military command structure decided to just wait events and not do anything that could possibly turn something out of control and create for a misunderstanding. So just so I under understand, I mean, if Kennedy's been killed, Lyndon Johnson is the the second in command and he should be having the the nuclear codes 
are, are there other options there? Well, the procedure usually is that after the president is given takes the oath of office, he is then briefed on the nuclear weapons responsibilities that he has. Um, and um, of course, you have always with the president within earshot is a warrant officer with uh, the bag that they call the football. But Johnson was so, I guess, dazed from the experience that he didn't even bother um, being briefed on it. There is an account that I will add from Bill Moyers, his uh, press secretary, saying that Johnson was literally looking out the one of the cabin windows saying, I can see the missiles coming. So I think Johnson's state of shock is probably why that did not follow. Wow. Wow. So, so for some considerable time, there was nobody with authority to order a counterattack if the Soviets had decided to strike. That is correct. But I will also say on the Soviet side that they were just as confused and in many ways experiencing similar occurrences. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, it's incredible. I just recently did an episode on Abel Archer and the 1983 mm. nuclear war scare, yes. and uh, this is uh, getting up there with it at the moment. <laughs> yes, I understand. I was serving at that time myself. So Air Force One has uh, President Kennedy's body placed on board and they leave the ground at uh, about 3 p.m. So what what's happening with the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk? Because last we heard of him, he's over the Pacific. That's true. Secretary of State Rusk received the message uh, via teletype, again, via commercial sources and not by official ones. He then went... Uh, on board the plane to the uh, cabin where the cabinet was sitting and told everyone the sad news. And of course, the reaction was absolute horror. He then conferred with um, Press Secretary Pierre Salinger, and they both uh, decided to uh, turn the plane around and head her back to Hickam Air Force Base at Hawaii. However, the aircraft commander had already done so on his own initiative. They then contacted Admiral Harry D. Felt, who was the Commander-in-Chief Pacific SYNCPAC, and they uh, decided to land at Hickam Air Force Base, refuel, and then take a nonstop flight back to Washington. In the meantime, they were still attempting to contact the Pentagon and the White House for updates on the situation. But again, it was rather difficult due to the incredible amount of message traffic that was in the air at the time. All right. So, th so they. I'm just trying to think. So this is early '60s. So they did have a way of secure radio communications. 
But what you're saying is because of the volume of the traffic, they were almost effectively getting an engaged tone. Pretty much. Um, I uh, had the opportunity to uh, listen to an audio tape that was from Air Force One that was in the possession of General Chester Clifton, uh, President Kennedy's military aide. And the amount of traffic that you have there is just so it's just one great big one great big uh, pileup in some cases and to me it's amazing that the national military command center the pentagon and everybody else was able to at least keep it functioning and keeping it from breaking down so admiral harry felt has been given the information about the assassination what does he decide to do well admiral felt on his own uh, accord, which he had the uh, command uh, duty to do, bumped all units in his command up to DEFCON 3. And in fact, uh, he even sent a flash message to that effect. I'll, I'll read it here. This is the time to be especially on the alert. Do not desire any actions that would indicate heightened tensions such as recall of personnel on leave, but take actions that would definitely be consistent with DEFCON 3. Now, when this message came out, according to many veterans who I've talked to, I talked to one in particular, he was a bosun's mate on a destroyer just out of Pearl Harbor. When they received the message, the ship immediately went to general quarters. They brought up the special weapons, that is the nuclear anti-submarine munitions from their magazines, loaded them. The ships immediately changed course to pre-positioned locations off the Soviet coast. In Yokosuka, Japan, uh, former crewman on the aircraft carrier USS Hornet told me that they were woken up at 04 0400, 4 o'clock in the morning. They were ordered to set the special sea detail, send general quarters, and the word went through the ship that the president had been shot and killed. And the warships there at Yokosuka sent, set a record departing the harbor at uh, air bases and military bases throughout the Pacific and the Far East. Units went on alert. Um, I know of one in particular in South Korea that was almost, they almost came close to flying their war mission. Wow. So the Pacific warships are actually sailing towards the Soviet Pacific coast, which to the Soviets might be uncomfortable view for them. Yes, that's true. In fact, uh, I don't really know much about what the Soviet response was outside of what I could I could find. I would say that they're probably very aware of the movements because they're likely monitoring their armistice traffic just as much as we were monitoring theirs. Um, but that was the strongest response was in the Far East. So effectively, the, the forces in the Pacific are almost on a hair-trigger state of readiness and ready to go to war. Pretty close, yes. Incredible. Incredible. Um, what what about over in, in Europe? Is there a similar situation emerging? Yes, there is. Uh, U.S. Uh, forces NATO put uh, a number of units on alert. I have an account of one in particular. He would just... Um, he was in the, the non-commissioned officers club at his base in Germany, and they immediately received word the president had been shot and were told to mount out to positions on the uh, East German border. And U.S. Air Forces Europe also had their bases on lockdown and their aircraft on one-way alert. 
Um, I have an account from one veteran saying that uh, West German Luftwaffe Air Base was also a beehive of activity, but uh, so far I have no information from uh, my contacts in Germany about that. I'm still looking into whether they had responded or not, but uh, in Europe, yes. So most of our overseas commands did have a very strong reaction. However, one thing I will say is that like Admiral Felt's message to not draw too much attention to yourselves, this was done in a very uh, low-keyed manner because, again, um, there was this, and I'll, I'll repeat myself again, this general concern of things going out of hand. This was done more as a precaution than as a mm. provocation, because you're right up there, right next to, you know, right next to the Warsaw Pact or the Chinese and the North Koreans, and they just want to be prepared in case something does happen, but they didn't want to make it too provocative. Now, Curtis LeMay is on his hunting trip, so what's happening with Strategic Air Command? Well, according to the accounts of uh, a number of people that I talked to that were SAC veterans, General Thomas Power at SAC headquarters in Omaha did not bump up uh, the alert level to DEFCON 3 like what occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis before. Um, the aircraft pretty much stayed on their basic level of alert, uh, according to a former B-52 aircraft commander that I, I talked to. Nothing really changed. And... Uh, According to the uh, main historian of the Air Force Missileers Association, missile uh, missile uh, commands didn't bump theirs either. So I found that as far as the nuclear strike forces went, they were pretty much on standby as everybody else was. I just wonder what the uh, situation would have been if LeMay was actually in the office at the time. Well, General LeMay, uh, he boarded his uh, C-140 and his uh, jet in Michigan and was on his way back and was obviously in communications. But I really don't know what he would have done. I think from the, what I see from the evidence, he pretty much seemed to concur with everyone else. But again, uh, there's really no record of uh, that I could find of his response at the time. However, the fact that the DEFCON level wasn't bumped up we can. It's reasonable to presume that LeMay concurred with the decision. No great friend of uh, Kennedy, though, was he? Well, uh, regarding General LeMay and Kennedy, I think a lot of the uh, disagreement that uh, LeMay had with Kennedy came from paro being parochial because uh, President Kennedy, as you know, was a Navy veteran and had a very strong love for the Navy, and General LeMay had a very deep animosity for the Navy going back many years. Part of it was because of the fact that uh, President Kennedy was taking a lot of the nuclear strike mission away from the Air Force and putting it for the Navy. Um, the um, number of uh, ballistic missile submarines, the Polaris boats, were, I think, doubled and even trebled under, uh, under Kennedy. And uh, LeMay saw that as a uh, taking away of the mission that he thought was exclusively the Air Force's. In fact, humorous story, um, LeMay would, took a model of a Polaris submarine and had it done up in sack colors and had it placed in his office in a prominent position whenever somebody from the Chief of Naval Operations came over. <laughs> 
But um, I do think, though, that as far as doing his duty as chief of staff on that day, he pretty much uh, concurred with what was being done. We we talked about the Pacific Fleet. What was happening on the East Coast? Anything? No. The con- the Second Fleet, the rea- uh, there on the East Coast, the reaction was completely different in um, places like at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and Naval Station in Norfolk, Virginia. The reaction was more mourning than panic. The um, flags were loaded, half staff, gun salutes were fired, and the whole base pretty much went into uh, into mourning. It pretty much mirrored the uh, feelings of the public in general. Were there any exceptions to that sort of like, let's just stay calm here, let's just not react in any way that could upset the uh, Soviets? Yes, there was one reaction, one exception, and that was at Fort Bliss, Texas. There was an alert battalion there from the 2nd Armored Division, and it received orders to mount out and deploy to Dallas in anticipation of a potential domestic disorder. The battalion commander, interestingly enough, was a Lieutenant Colonel George S. Patton, Jr., the son of the famous World War II general. And upon receiving his orders, he then began the very complicated process of loading his armored vehicles on railroad flat cars. And being a former armor officer myself, I can tell you this is a very delicate and very time-consuming procedure. But he began the process of preparing to mount out. However, later that evening at about uh, 22, 10 o'clock in the evening, he received the order to secure and stand down. But this was the exception. So it's generally shock and disbelief that people are experiencing at this time. Yes, yes. It, as I said before, it mirrored the uh, the mood of the generally that was around the country. When does LeMay actually uh, get back into Washington? He lands at about uh, seventeen hundred five o'clock in the uh, in the evening, and uh, from what I can gather, he likely went to the Pentagon and oversaw the alert. As chief of staff of the Air Force, he definitely would want to be in on uh, just in case anything did happen and the balloon did go up. We briefly touched on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Do we have any evidence as to what was going on or what what they were thinking? Well, yes, actually, because the... Recent declassification of documents pertaining to the JFK assassination does show uh, from a memo from the FBI dated uh, 1966 that the leadership of the Kremlin was just as horrified as it was in uh, in America. And uh, the communist leadership in Moscow really were so horrified in many ways, the atmosphere in the Kremlin mirrored that in the Pentagon. They were afraid that extremist elements in the military, this is their words, would use this as a justification to start an attack on the USSR. So in so many ways, it mirrored the very same mindset that was happening in Washington. Uh, but in spite of it, uh, with one exception, from what we know, none of the Warsaw Pact countries or any communist nation raised uh, their military to a heightened level. But there was right. an exception. And we'll come to that exception in a moment. So the Soviets thought that there might be a coup going on in the US or something like that. 
Yes, that was a fear of theirs. There was um, a lot of, uh, they, they were afraid that the more extremist elements from within the American military might use this as a justification to spontaneously launch a strike on the Soviets. Uh, what Stanley Kubrick showed in his uh, subsequent film, Dr. Strangelove, which, a uh, little interesting uh, anecdote here, it was to have had its first screening on November 22nd, 1963. Wow. Wow. And we do love an anecdote on here, John. So uh, if you've got any other nuggets like that, do do share them. Certainly. Um, you you briefly mentioned there there, there was an exception. Um, who was the exception? That exception was Cuba. When they received the news, Fidel Castro was just as horrified as everyone else. But instead of going into mourning, he immediately put a complete mobilization order for the Cuban armed forces. And his message that he put out stated, a state of alert is ordered for all military personnel. Be prepared to repel aggression. And so the entire Cuban military, in many ways repeating what happened the uh, year before during the, the uh, missile crisis, was put on the highest state of alert throughout the island with a special emphasis being placed around the U.S. Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay. And they were continuously uh, prepared for a possible invasion, a possible airstrike. Um, the further messages they had called for continued vigilance and to watch for suspicious aircraft. And so for the rest of the day and into the evening, all of Cuba was preparing for what they considered a likely U.S. counterstrike. Wow. Well, and by this point, all the nuclear weapons have been removed from Cuba. Uh, yes, for all intents and purposes. However, I will add that there were still a considerable number of Soviet military personnel there acting as advisors. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. When does Johnson get back to uh, Washington from, from Dallas with the president's body? Around six, uh, Air Force One finally touched down at Andrews Air Force Base. And, uh, of course, we all know from the uh, archival footage that's happened. In fact, I, I actually saw it on television myself at, uh, at our home, seeing Air Force One touch down, seeing the president's body removed, seeing Mrs. Kennedy, of course, and uh, Robert Kennedy and the uh, Navy ambulance heading off to um, Bethesda, and then President and Mrs. Johnson making a brief speech, and I recall it very well. Johnson asked for our help and God's, and then departed for the White House aboard Army One, the presidential helicopter. Was there any sort of additional military preparations done in, in Washington for fear of an attack on, on Johnson or anything like that? No. Uh, standard security procedures are followed as far as uh, the Secret Service protection. I do know that uh, certain extra efforts were made to protect the remaining members of the Kennedy family by the Secret Service. I would not be surprised if the military might have possibly increase, you know, level of security. But again, if they did, they did it very quietly and 
unobtrusively so as not to start a panic. Now, um, I do know that a special order was put out to the military district of Washington when the news arrived of President Kennedy being shot by General Taylor himself. But again, nothing overt was uh, was done. If anything was done, as I said before, it was likely very unobtrusive and covert. Does the the situation just fade away, or does it still roll into the fo- the following day? This tenseness um, it, that's uh, manifesting itself around the world. Yes, it did. It broke in upon uh, a very tense, and I will add, very grieving world. But as the day wore on, the crisis atmosphere began to subside, and by midday, both Cuba and American overseas commands relaxed their alert level. I would say from my accounts, the alert level in the Pacific theater was for about six hours. And then after that, the uh, units stood down. Um, they relaxed their alert, and uh, but they still kept up a certain degree of, uh, of vigilance just to keep an eye on each other to see if anything was getting out of hand. But um, by the 24th of November, the Pentagon finally ordered the alert level lowered back to DEFCON 5 to 12.30 Eastern time. And by the 25th, Cuba's alert was stood down as well. When you look back at this, it looks like basically command and control broke down just when it was needed most. Were any changes made as a result of November 63? Yes. A lot better communications procedures were put in place. And uh, from my own experience with the assassination attempt on uh, President Reagan, I can tell you that we had a lot better and more measured response when that occurred than what had the confusion that happened uh, back in 1963. Because I think you, you mentioned earlier, it was quite incredible that the National Military Command Center, uh, the White House Situation Room and the Pentagon did manage to keep the, the wheels running with that immense volume of uh, information that they were having mm-hmm. to process. Yes, it's it's really astonishing that they were able to to do it. They had to act as gatekeepers. I uh, was listening to the audio tape, and if anybody wants to listen to it, it can be found at the Mary Farrell Foundation website, the complete audio tape. It's fascinating to listening to all the people who were asking just what's going on, what's the present uh, situation, and you just had all these different agencies crowding the net asking for uh, their questions on the situation to be answered and the National Military Command Center having to bump people off the line. For example, uh, Colonel Dorman, he was General LeMay's uh, military aide, was attempting to get in contact with the general and he was having just consistent difficulty attempting to do it. Um, you actually had people saying, you know, you know, get basically get off the air, you know, we have a message we have to go through. And once again, I really have to commend whoever, you know, General Tibbetts, especially for his job in keeping those lines of communications open. Did they use the hotline to Moscow to let them know that everything was okay? According to what I have so far from what I was able to glean, no, they did not. Now, I would presume, again, that most likely some communication was made between Moscow and America because um, 
at the funeral, uh, Anastas Mikoyan, who was one of the deputy ministers of the Soviet Union, arrived as the representative of the USSR. And I do know also that at the um, embassy, when they had the condolence book out, and I saw this myself on, on television, Khrushchev came, personally came in, signed the condolence book, removed his reading glasses, and you could see that he was literally beside himself with grief. So uh, there's no doubt that some communications happened, but I haven't been able to find anything specific. I guess it's it's like any government. The fear is instability and the unknown. And, you know, whilst Khrushchev had, had a challenging um, relationship with Kennedy, he knew where he was with him by this point in the relationship. And yeah. uh, for him to go and then him have to deal with a, a new president or a, or a new situation as well. Yes. In fact, uh, one of the uh, in my me one of the declassified messages that I have regarding Cuba, there was a um, the Cuban government was uh, attempting to get all data concerning Lyndon Johnson, and uh, they were informed that uh, they wanted as much biographical information on him as possible, so he could understand who he was and what his possible responses or actions can be. And so I would not be surprised at all if the Soviets did exactly the same thing. So the funeral is held on the 25th of November in is Washington. Yes. I'm assuming there were huge numbers of mourners there because of the popularity of Kennedy. I, I've seen it myself. I don't think anybody who was there either in Washington or in the United States or around the world for that matter. In fact, since we're talking about the Soviet Union for the first time, the coverage unedited of the funeral was broadcast to audiences within the Soviet Union for the first time. It was probably at the time the largest and most extensive memorial ever given to a president. Um, because if I may just go some background here, um, when the um, news arrived at the White House of President Kennedy's death, the military district of Washington immediately put themselves at the disposal of their White House. And Major General Philip C. Vela, he was the commander of the military district of Washington, by his direct order, established a funeral operations center at the district headquarters at Fort McNair. And detailed briefings were immediately given to all parties involved, the military, civilian, uh, police. And um, then afterwards, the district, the whole district personnel prepared for the funeral. Then on the 25th, when it was conducted, it was the, for the first time, President Kennedy had the distinction of being the first American president to be buried with full military honors at Arlington Cemetery. In a way, it's their own tribute to their fallen commander-in-chief. And if I may, as a little, another anecdote here, I have a, I'm looking at a photograph of the Joint Chiefs and the military aides at the funeral, and one thing that strikes me is the look of absolute shock and grief on the face of General Curtis LeMay. It's, it's astonishing. For one moment, that iron visage fell away, and you can see the 
absolute just sorrow on his face. It's astonishing. If Kennedy had survived, how do you think his presidency would have continued and what what difference would it have made? I think that as far as the um the Cold War would go, I think it would have probably gone a little differently. I know that he was planning a visit to the Soviet Union in 1964 where they were going to negotiate a nuclear weapons treaty. Uh, regarding Cuba, he was making overtures to Cuba at the time, and Castro was interested because uh, one of the things few people know is that the Cuban economy was becoming a disaster, being run by fanatics like Che Guevara. And because America had a lot more resources, Castro, who had a very strong pragmatic streak, was uh, being amenable to it. Now, the other hotspot, of course, Vietnam, that's a very controversial topic. Some people say Kennedy would have withdrawn. Some people say he would have stayed. Having been alive at the time and knowing the atmosphere and, of course, the opposition he would have from the extreme right from within the Republican Party, um, he most likely would have kept it an advisory war. In fact, he was expanding the uh, covert operations by turning it over to the uh, the military from the CIA. Now, what he would have done after he was reelected is a mystery. I do know, however, that based on the accounts, he would probably have never sent combat troops to Vietnam. And this is based on the fact that during his administration, President Kennedy was pressured, I believe, on nine occasions to send combat troops to Southeast Asia, and he turned them all down flat, even when his cabinet unanimously uh, insisted on it. So I don't think uh, he would have sent combat troops, most likely kept an advisor or possibly a diplomatic solution. I do know that with the um, rapprochement that was happening between uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev, had he lived, Khrushchev would have been less likely they would have been removed from power. But again, you know, we can ask what if till the cows come home. However, I do think one thing, I don't know if the world would have been better if Kennedy had lived, but it would have been different. John, why, why do you think this is an important story to tell? Um, this is a story that I think we need to go into more detail because it is an important part, not just because of the history of America, because of the history of the Cold War. And why this story has not been told again is something that I find mind-boggling, because I think from a historic point of view, the fact that the military was in such a high state of tension most likely had a hand in Lyndon Johnson's mindset when it came to other foreign policy events, such as during Vietnam, he was afraid of things spinning out of control there too. And often, uh, Lyndon Johnson would use the threat of nuclear war to browbeat people into submission. So I think that the effect of this uh, this time and this moment in time and in, in the history of the Cold War had a profound effect on subsequent events. Being interested in in this period of history, it's fascinating what you've managed to uh, discover. And as you say, there's probably more 
there. I mean, we're we're not going to get access to the Russian archives anytime sh- soon, unfortunately. But yeah, there, there's still more of this story to be told. Indeed, there is. As more comes out, I think we will get a more detailed picture of uh, what really happened that day. So if anybody else has got any other accounts of this period, how would they get in contact with you, John? All right. They can email me through my my account. Okay. And I'll include that in the uh, episode notes as well. I mean, generally what I find when I publish an episode is that I get other people contacting with similar stories so uh, maybe we'll find some other accounts that uh, perhaps you've you've not come across before i'd be more than happy to uh, get in touch with these people don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening, and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.